0: Wonder if you've ever thought what people outside the church think about what Christians are like inside the church. There's a lot of stereotypes, aren't there? Uh, often quite contradictory. There's the uh, sort of hippie quiche eaters in sandals with a rainbow guitar, singing "Kumbaya" while tapping, but slightly out of time. Uh, that, that's one sort of stereotype, isn't it? You also get the uh, the hellfire, judgmental type, don't you, condemning all uh, who cross their path, shouting at people. And always angry about something. But probably the most common one is the sort of one that's in between. The caricature that Christians are really just rule lovers. Uh, that we're commandment quotas. That they like the Bible, but not so much for its message, but for its morals. And you, they're sort of a Christian version of what you find in moralists everywhere. You know, they're the jobs worth at work that holds everything up by insisting on everything being done exactly by the book. They're the one in the school playground who grasses you in, who dobs you in, or whatever word you want to use tells on you. They're the ones that insist on following the handbook to the letter. Whether it be a toaster, or a laptop, or a washing machine, everything has to be by the book. The only thing they love more than the rules is telling off other people for breaking the rules. Sort of looking searingly down their noses at others and feeling superior. But really, this should not be a caricature of Christians at all. None of them should be. I am fond of peach from time to time. But in the book of Galatians, we've been seeing that actually Paul, the Apostle Paul, has been speaking out about these kinds of people. Specifically here, those who are trying to impose Old Testament law, rules and practices on the church. What they're saying is that faith in Jesus and his death on the cross is not enough to save you. And then in fact you need to keep the Old Testament law in order to be saved and in order to grow as a Christian. And they're encouraging non-Jews to become Jewish and Jews to go back to their previous way of life before they became Christians. Not really abandoning Christ but living by the law rather than faith in Christ. So putting Christ to one side. And that is a danger that we can face as believers too. We may not go the whole hog and insist on food laws and circumcision, but we can certainly slip into that legalist mentality, the idea that we're accepted by God, not for what Christ has done, but because of what we do. And Paul has been trying to shake them out of this, trying to wake them up to the truth of what's going on. If they want to live like that, if they really want to follow the Old Testament, well, what did the Old Testament say, says Paul? And that's our first point this morning. More than a true story. Let me just read to you uh, verses 21 to 23 again. Uh, if you're in the right chapter. Okay. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. For those of you who might not know the story, or it's a bit hazy in your mind, Abraham had two sons. He actually had more than two sons, but that complicates things, so we're not going to go into that right now. But God had promised Abraham that he would have a son who would inherit the promises that the Lord had made to him. And they were big promises. A great people. A place like Eden. And blessing beyond their wildest dreams. Paul summarises these promises in Romans 4.13 as Abraham and his offspring being heir to the whole world. But a few years after making the promise to Abraham, nothing seems to be happening. So Abraham and Sarah took matters into their own hands and gave Sarah's maid slash slave, Hagar, to Abraham to produce a child. But this was not the way that God had intended to fulfil his promise. This was not in the spirit of the promise that God had made to provide a son for them. But Hagar became pregnant and a child was born and he was named Ishmael. God spoke to Abraham and explained that a son would be born after that as a result of the promise. A child who would be a physical descendant of both Abraham and Sarah. And that child was called Isaac, the child of the promise. The heir of the promises, father of the Jewish race and the Edomites, but again we won't go into that right now. But Paul takes this situation and he tells us in verse twenty four this may be interpreted allegorically. Now the original Greek is actually stronger, it just says this is an allegory and the Greek word is allegreo, okay, so that's really what it means. Now, Paul is not saying that Abraham, Isaac, and Ishmael are fictional. He's not saying it's the ancient world's version of Narnia, okay? Spiritual truth made up story. He's not saying that. The Bible makes it clear that this is real history. What Paul is saying, though, is that it's not just history. (coughs) This isn't just a real account of events. There's a meaning to what's going on. So it's more than a true story. Now that doesn't mean though then that we're free to make out of this story whatever we like. Okay? We're not Abba. Okay? That's the pop group I'm referring to. You know Abba, they did that song Waterloo. They took a, a battle and they made it about a relationship, didn't they? Historical event, Napoleon surrendered at the Battle of Waterloo, uh, Waterloo. Attached allegorical meaning, I should give in and surrender to your love. That's the way they sort of do it, allegory. Now, it's bad in so many ways, isn't it? Not musically, of course. It's, one of music yeah, yeah. it's bad partly because Napoleon didn't surrender at the Battle of Waterloo, actually. He ran away, which makes the whole song completely <laughs> nonsensical. It um, doesn't work as so well for the allegory. But partly as well, history just doesn't work that way. You can't just look at history and attach a meaning to it, whatever you like. One of the worst examples I've heard of this in Bible teaching was uh, someone teaching on the Good Samaritan. That's a parable, but they were sort of just making up the meaning. So the man who was beaten at the roadside, well that's Jesus who was beaten. The Good Samaritan who helps, well that's Jesus, he's our helper. The innkeeper who welcomes them in, that's Jesus. And I was sat there listening to the talk, half expecting that the donkey who <laughs> the carried the man to the inn, you know, because if you sort of take that free-for-all approach, you know, there were good intentions there, But it's not following what Jesus actually says the story is about. And that's the point here. In this historical account, in this real history, we need to think about what God wants us to understand from the story, rather than just what we want to make of the story. And Paul is not attaching an unconnected theme to these characters. He is showing us God's intent in making them part of his story. He's showing us how the themes of law and promise, faith and works were already there, right in the Old Testament. This is what the law says, verse 21. The law there, meaning the first five books of the Bible, including this story in Genesis. But we see that Paul was not reading it as bare history. Paul saw that God had an intention beyond just telling us what happened. In fact, God is driving the action, is working out the pot so that it does this. This is his story for his purposes. So when we read the Old Testament, especially, we must be beware of treating it as just a true story. It is a true story, but there's more going on. Think about the story of redemption in Exodus that we've been looking at with the children, and Christ in the Passover lamb, A picture of Christ in the the sacrifice of Isaac, even. There's lots more happening than bare history. And if we're looking for what God is saying through it, we need to look at it through New Testament eyes. And that's really what Paul is doing here, and that's what he's telling us he's doing. So what does he see? Well, our second point. point. Two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Let me read to you verses 24 uh, down a bit further. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. Now you might think here, Ishmael seems authentically Abrahamic, right? He is after all, technically Abraham's firstborn son. He grew up with Abraham there. He was circumcised by Abraham. But our passage sees him in a different light. It sees him as the child of a slave woman, a child of slavery, destined to be cast out. Paul describes him as being born according to the flesh in verse 23. Now, I must admit, when I've read that before, I've immediately been thinking, you know, lust and debauchery and base desire when you think about the flesh. And there's good reason to think that. The next chapter will confront us with the lusts of the flesh and the works of the flesh. But that's not really the emphasis here. It's not that Abraham was lusting after Hagar. It's not that it was an illicit relationship. In context, it's that the child was born out of human effort and ingenuity rather than through faith in the promise. That's why flesh and promise are contrasted there in verse 23, as though they're opposites. You can live by the flesh, or you can trust in the promise. And living according to the flesh is not always being outwardly immoral. We'll see it can be in the next chapter, but what's in mind here is living according to your own strength (coughs) and your own will. Adhering to a moral code, perhaps, as a means of advancement, or law, as it's called here, or the basic principles of the world, as it was called earlier in the chapter. (coughs) The idea of those things that are the fundamentals of our age, the way things just work. You know, you don't get something for nothing. God helps those who help themselves. Well, you can imagine people quoting that to Abraham, couldn't you, when he was there waiting for a child. What are you waiting for God for? That's not the way it works in our world. Do it your own way. Make it happen yourself. And for the Galatians, that was the temptation that they were undergoing, linked to the Old Testament law. Trying to establish their own standing before God, not through trusting him, but by rule keeping. Trying to climb an impossible ladder to God, when God has actually sent us a helicopter in Christ. Not like the helicopter we had last week trying to land on the, the ceiling if you were here, but he's come down to us. Well, they instead want to make themselves slaves to the law, rather than enjoying the liberty of Christ. That is the flesh, says Paul. And to hammer it home, he says that Abraham—sorry—that Hagar represents a covenant. He tells us which one in verse 25. The one made on Mount Sinai. The Mosaic covenant, the law of Moses. The one that we've been looking at in our series in Exodus which we'll be going back to in a couple of weeks. The one that made legal demands and had penalties. The one that required obedience for blessing. The one that Israel had always fundamentally messed up. And in the end, they just treated it like another legal code. But Paul has been showing us that it should have been a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. It should have been showing us our need of Jesus. But they're following that, says Paul. And to add insult to injury, he reminds us that Mount Sinai is in Arabia. Just as Hagar was from outside of Abraham's family, she was Egyptian, so Mount Sinai lay outside where they would normally have their borders. Why would you want to go to Arabia? Arabia would become, of course, home to Ishmael's physical descendants, the Arabs. And that's what makes what comes next so shocking. Mount Sinai, Hagar, the old covenants. It corresponds to the present Jerusalem, says Paul. Those Jews claiming to be truly Abraham's children by virtue of their birth and law-keeping, says Paul, well, spiritually, they're descendants of Hagar, the slave. Spiritually, they're Arabs, says Paul. Now, that would be just as shocking then as it is now. Paul is being deliberately provocative. He's saying if you want to end up a Jew in the way that you think of them, then actually you'll end up a slave and part of God's enemies, not part of his people. A descendant of Hagar, a child of the flesh and a slave. But that's not what God wants for them. They're supposed to be Isaacs. So have a look again, verse 26. But Jerusalem that is above, she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear... Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labour. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. At this point, the allegory has taken a few steps further uh, than where we started. It was two women, two covenants, a mountain and a city. It's covered a lot of ground, hasn't it, in a few minutes. And it finished though with a city, Jerusalem, that had children. And here, he starts off where he's finished. The Jerusalem above and her children, he refers to. Now, if we were to go back and fill in the gaps, we'd have another woman named Sarah, Abraham's wife. The mountain is probably Mount Zion. That's certainly where this goes in Hebrews 12. And the covenant is the new covenant in Christ's blood. Again, that's where it goes in Hebrews. But Paul doesn't give us all that, so we're just going to follow where Paul leads us. The children of the free woman are children of the Jerusalem above. And if you're following the contrast, you should notice that's a bit of a surprise. You'd expect the contrast to be the present Jerusalem and the future Jerusalem, wouldn't you? You'd expect it to be uh, the Jerusalem above, the heavenly Sorry, you'd expect it to be the future rather than a heavenly Jerusalem. <laughs> and again, Hebrews 12 is helpful here. I'm doing well this morning, here we go. Hebrews 12. But you have come, have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You see, the Jerusalem these children belong to is not just in the future. It says you have come. It's a present reality. But the center of this Jerusalem is not on earth, it's above. Our citizenship is in heaven. One day that Jerusalem will be on earth as it comes down as the new Jerusalem. So Revelation 21, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Again, the city described as a woman. This Jerusalem is free, not a slave, and she bears children of liberty, not of slavery. And to back this up, Paul quotes Isaiah 54, you see it there in Verse 27, rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labour, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the one who has a husband. The barren one there in this context we read as Sarah, who was unable to have children until the Lord miraculously opened her womb. She is to cry aloud, sing, rejoice, because her offspring will be multiplied. Her outcome will be better than the one who seemed to have all the advantages. She is the one who wins the day. And if you take a look at Isaiah 54 later, you'll see how this all looks forward to the situation we have here. Sarah's offspring spreading abroad abroad and possessing the nations. The Lord taking this people to be his bride. Loving them with an everlasting love. Telling them that his anger is gone. Making a covenant of peace with them. This is what the children of Sarah are to enjoy. And Paul encourages his readers in verse 28 that they really are children of the promise. They are the Isaacs. And through Isaac will your offspring be reckoned. They are children of the free woman, not of the slave. So is this saying then that God has rejected the Jews and replaced them with the Gentiles? Not at all. Paul includes himself in this in verse 31, and he is a Jew. But what he's saying is that the children of Sarah, the Isaacs of this world, are those who are born of the Spirit, verse 29. And those who have put their trust in Jesus' work alone for their salvation, whether they are Jew or Gentile. You don't need to be a biological descendant of Sarah, Paul is saying, to be a true Isaac. It's about whether your faith is in your works or in Christ's work. Not whether your family tree can be traced back to Abraham. True believers are Isaac, says Paul. Children of the price. So what are we then, if this is saying this is us, what are we then to do in the light of all this? Or well, two things in our last point. Cry aloud and keep going. Cry aloud and keep going. Let's have a look at verse 27. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you are not who in who are not in labour. For the children of the desolate woman will be more than the one who has a husband. Now the free woman here is to cry aloud in joy. Now, technically, we are children of the free woman. Okay, that's what it's saying. But I think the point still applies. Because this is true, all that he's been saying. That those who trust in the Lord Jesus can come in. The gospel is going out to the ends of the earth. It means that Sarah has abundant children. And not just those who are alive now. All who are part of the heavenly Jerusalem. Old Testament, New Testament, dead, alive. All of them are children of the free woman. All of them reckoned righteous because of Christ. The gospel is growing and bearing fruit across the world. The heavenly Jerusalem is bigger today than it has ever been before, and it is still growing. There are people from tribes and tongues and nations that have never heard the gospel before, that are hearing it for the first time today. And that's reason to rejoice. There's rejoicing in heaven today. And there's much reason to rejoice on earth, isn't there? Despite how it might sometimes look in our little corner of the world... The kingdom is growing across the world. So we have reason to cry aloud and rejoice. That is one of the things that we do as ISIS. We have a lot of brothers and sisters across the globe. And it is growing. So we're to cry aloud, we're to rejoice at the progress of the gospel. But secondly, though, we're also uh, to keep going. Paul notes that this was... Uh, uh, sorry, we're to keep going. Because actually, it gets tough. As the gospel goes out, persecution increases. Paul notes that was the case with Isaac and Ishmael, right the way back in Genesis. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a feast on that day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham laughing in mockery. Uh, So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman, shall not be heir with my son, Isaac. He's saying this has always been the case, right back when it was these two women and these two children. We will face persecution. It's been forever the way that those born of the Spirit, born of the promise, will have it tough. In our part of the world, it's quite mild, really, isn't it, compared to some other parts of the world. But even here, the persecution that Isaac experienced was mockery. It was being laughed at. There's no hint that he was physically attacked or abused by uh, by Ishmael. But it still hurt. And we know that it can hurt, don't we? The sneers and dismissive comments of others. The way people can look down their noses at us. In other parts of the world, our brothers and sisters do face physical attacks. That said, I was reading this week about an evangelist in the UK who's received multiple death threats and has had to move multiple times. Because she comes from a Muslim background and is seeking to reach Muslims to the gospel. Persecution is there, that's in the UK. But Paul wants them to stick to the truth in the midst of that. He reminds them that this has always been the way. And part of the evidence that they are on the side of the truth is that they are being persecuted. If they want to stand for this truth, they will be. Notice that Paul isn't persecuting the false teachers. It's not him that's using backhanded tactics and flattery to get them on side. It's the false teachers that are using those methods. Now, that isn't a 100% perfect test. False teachers have got persecuted too, down through the ages. But if you're getting flack, it's often as a believer because you're doing something right. As Paul writes to Timothy Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But Paul is telling us not to give in. We don't give in. But we also don't just roll over. Certainly not in the church. If there is false teaching, we are to deal with it as a church. Now verse 30 is is a quote, not a command. That they're to put out, uh, cast out the slave woman. It's saying that Hagar, the children of Hagar, are cast out. That they do not inherit. That they do not belong in the kingdom. So it's not saying that we employ bouncers for uh, the battle. Uh, we have a welcome team, but that's not really the same idea, is it? You know, bouncers at the back. Anyone who's not 100% theologically sound, let's kick them out. That's not what it's saying. But it is a reminder that we need to take false teaching seriously and work against it. Especially false teaching that passes itself off as the gospel. Counterfeit gospels cost lives, eternal lives. Ishmael's and Isaac's can look and sound very similar. Both of them you find in churches. Both of them take an interest in the Bible. Both are serious in some way about living in a godly way. Both claim the Lord Jesus as their saviour. But one is teaching error, and the other is teaching truth. So how are we to tell the difference? How are we to guard against false teaching? Well, one of the big ones is that we need to know what true teaching is. That is why Paul is writing them this letter, to remind them of the truth. Do we know what's so wrong about what these guys are teaching? Do we understand why Paul thinks it's such a threat? Are we clear on the fundamentals of our faith so we can spot when things are off? Doctrinal matters. Now doctrine divides, it's true. But often it's a right division. There are sometimes we do need to divide on doctrine. Not over something that doesn't matter. But over things that are the very nature of the gospel itself, like here. Now again, that doesn't mean we need to be bloodhounds deliberately going around sniffing everybody out for the latest whiff of error. We're not to be the Spanish Inquisition. No one expects that. So we need to think, you know, we need to train our noses to be sort of off milk sniffers. Do you know what I mean by that? You can tell when something's off. You don't go around and just snip all your milk, do you? When you think that something's off, you can smell it, can't you? Even if we might not know what proper words to call it, we can we can sort of sense that something's not quite right. So it's not so much we go looking for it, but we need to know it when we find it. And these Galatians, their theological notices, weren't trained enough. And instead of taking impure spiritual milk, they've accepted sickly off milk that was making them sick. And that is not going to help them keep growing. It is not going to help them mature as believers. All it will do is reinforce those stereotypes of believers being snooty-nosed legalists who delight to look down on others. There is a way of life that will help them keep going through. There is a path that will help them walk on and press on to maturity. There is an alternative to legalism and slavery to the law that doesn't mean a life of sin and license. That also doesn't turn you into a hippie or an angry shouty person. But we haven't got there in the letter. The letter is building up to go through. Paul is demolishing before he builds up. He's taking out these false teachers before he brings us the way of life. But I don't want to leave you hanging too much. So as we close, let me give you a sneak preview of what is coming. Galatians 5, 13 uh, to 23. Well, it's not that. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Well, let's pray that God would help us to let go of the false and hang on to the truth. Let's pray. Father God, we we confess that so often we don't always know things in the way that we should. Father, we're not astute enough um, with our theology to know uh, false teaching. But Father, thank you for the help of your Spirit. Father, help us to be able to spot false teaching. And Father, help us as a church not to succumb to any of those things, but instead, help us to trust in Christ's sufficient sacrifice on the cross that did everything that we need to be saved and not to trust in our own efforts and our own works. Father, we know so quickly we fall back into these things. So keep us from this this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.